Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of May 31st from Pastor Brett Cottrell. I invite you to open up your Bibles to the, gospel, to the book of Acts. Still used to sometimes saying the Gospel of Mark after two years. To the book of Acts. The events of the, the last few months and few weeks, namely... The COVID-19 virus have worn on us. The events of the last week have once again, like so many weeks in the last few years, have angered and frustrated and saddened most all of us. The events of the last two nights in our nation have perhaps stunned us. In the face of everything from viruses to pandemics, the protests, riots, and murder, especially murder from those whose job it is to protect, how do we respond? What do we do? It seems that in my just a little over three years as pastor here, that there has been an increasingly, alarmingly, increasingly rate of weeks like the ones we have just seen. The prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament looked out upon the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem in his day, and he said this, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. These verses are from Habakkuk the prophet as he looked upon the people of God some 2,600 years ago. And yet these words could flow from our hearts even today. When we see and experience the events that we have, they can overwhelm, they can depress, they can frustrate. We look to those who we believe are in a position of to help through words and actions. We look for reasons to hope. We look for things and people to blame, perhaps, and even paths to help and fix. Maybe we just close our eyes and hope it all goes away. Now, those of you who live in London or this area may comfort yourselves with the idea that the worst of the COVID issues, the worst of the racism, the worst of the injustice seems to happen in places far away. Perhaps, in a way, to deal with the constant news of shootings and riots and injustice by those in authority, you tell yourself, at least it's not that bad here. Maybe it isn't. But that defense is a fool's errand. It's a defense that only leads to those things, in fact, coming closer. Sticking your head in the sand and hoping it doesn't happen here is no defense. Maybe that's all we can do. Hope it doesn't happen here. Maybe we feel powerless to stop it. 
Maybe he feels too big for us. After all, we're not in Minneapolis or Louisville or New York or even Brunswick, Georgia. In the last few years, we could say we're not in Las Vegas or Washington, D.C. or St. Louis or Miami or the countless other places things have been happening. And there is a sense that our powerlessness to change, our powerlessness to change anything, our powerlessness to change the human heart, a heart that is, in fact, the Bible tells us, sinful and proud, selfish and hateful, is accurate. I can't change another's heart. Now, there are other things that people can do, whether it be to enact laws or elect leaders who represent both righteousness and compassion. He'll take measures to do what is right in society and the like. And all these have a very incredibly needed place. But as we sit here this morning, in this building or in our living rooms or back porches or wherever we may be, in our homes, there is something else that we can do as well. The book of Acts, as we talked about the last two weeks, is the story of the continuing acts of Christ. This is how the book, the account that Luke has written, is presented to us, whether it was first in his gospel or now in the book of Acts. We've already seen the story of Jesus begun. It continues to this day. I would even bring it out further, that the story of God's activity in history begins in Genesis and will end in Revelation, a book that suggests to us even this morning that God's story is not yet done. You and I, while the Bible is God's written word, and it's complete and it's total for the purposes God has intended, the story and activity of God, however, is not yet complete. You and I are living in a time where God, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are in fact alive and working even as we speak. And we, the church, are part of that. Now perhaps as I approach and refer to the events of the last few days, you're thinking to yourself, I want to come and escape that for a few moments. I want to be encouraged. I want to be inspired. I want to feel better. I want to move past these things. I want to not think about them for an hour or so. But God never looks past or looks to escape from or ignore sin. God never sticks his head in the sand and hope bad things goes away. He deals with it firsthand, face to face. And guess what? So must we. God did not simply wish away evil. He confronted it, and through the indescribable suffering and sacrifice of Christ, he did it through the resurrection of that same Jesus. Now, what does this mean for us as we live in our role here in 2020? Read with me in Acts chapter 1, verse 2. Actually, we're going to begin the very first verse. The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. God, when looking at the sin of Habakkuk's day, a sin that was prevalent in Jerusalem and Judah, he sent the Babylonians. A solution that Habakkuk, God's prophet, found even more frightening and confusing than the current state of sin of Israel. God's solutions can sometimes mystify us. The world of the first century that Acts was written in and that the apostles lived in was not so different from ours today. Maybe it was worse. Palestine and the world of Jesus and Peter and James and John and Paul saw the same things that we do. They saw an empire, a Roman empire, a government that killed it at, at a whim and murdered when it felt like it. The Jews felt they were superior to everyone else because they were God's chosen people. The rest of the world simply despises them. The Romans felt themselves superior because of military might and culture and technology. The world feared them. Pagan religions, competing philosophies, rampant immorality, even slavery and prejudice. Every sin you can imagine today was happening then too. And what were a few powerless individuals going to be able to do about it? What power did a few mostly rural fishermen, small businessmen, uneducated workers have to change all that? We see God's mystifying answer in Acts chapter 1. First, the thing that he did is that he proved his resurrection. Now, this is going to be important for us. Because God is going to do some things through these men that they're going to need some help with. And the first thing God does here, the first thing Christ did was he proved his resurrection. Now you might be thinking to yourself this morning as we get to Acts chapter 1, hasn't he already done that? Hasn't he already appeared to the two men on the road to Emmaus? He's already appeared in the upper room. He's left, he let Thomas even touch him. He ate breakfast with Peter on the shore of the lake. What's happening here in Acts chapter 2 where he says he gave them proofs? Well, those things are no doubt included in Luke's account here. Those mentions are probably already part of the proofs that he's referring to. But he, Jesus repeatedly appeared to them over 40 days. But think about this. It might take several appearances and, and true acts and demonstrations to prove to these men that he really is alive. I think it would take something for me to believe that someone I knew was dead was in fact alive. I mean, it would take something remarkable to prove to me they really were alive and to get to the point where I would put my life on the line for the idea that they were alive. So he didn't appear just once or twice or even three times. He repeatedly, over 40 days, appeared so that there would be no confusion, there would be no allegations, no ideas of hallucinations, no idea of grief playing tricks on their minds. He so proved he was alive that their lives would never be the same. And that we, even this morning, are counted among the generations that have believed as a result 
of the convincing proof that Jesus gave of his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is at the heart of everything this morning. If he didn't resurrect, then we're wasting our time on another moral, ethical lecturer. If he did, in fact, resurrect, then there is a power and a purpose to our lives and a quality of life that far exceeds anything that you and I know here. And that is the life we're moving toward and working for. That means that life on this earth, in this state, in this nation, is not the one that we're ultimately looking and working towards. It's not the one that dominates our thoughts and moments and beliefs. It's the resurrected, eternal life that does. It means for us that resurrection is not something that we simply talk about at funerals and on Sunday mornings. It means that resurrection and the death itself is no more than a toothless beast. Those ideas matter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, some folks, some folks call it the resurrection chapter, says this about the resurrection of Christ. I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I tell you a mystery that we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Verse 55, O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The resurrection means everything. This is our future. It's our future reality. And it not only means we will change then, but it means we must live changed lives today. But not only did Jesus prove over periods of 40 days His resurrection, we also see here that he taught about the kingdom. Verse 2 says he gave them orders. Um, it also says he told them, talked to them about things concerning the kingdom of God. He trained them. He taught them. Perhaps in greater detail, with greater focus than they had ever experienced before. After all, now he is in fact resurrected. That probably draws your attention. Now, maybe it was similar. We don't really know exactly what he said, but maybe it was similar to what he taught the two men on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, where he said, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in Scripture. Now, they're wondering about all this stuff. His resurrection, his defeat of death, the teaching, the power. At the end of time, at the, at the end of his, at the time of his reign has now here, they even ask him, the disciples do, is it at this time you're restoring your kingdom to Israel? As he's teaching them. Now, he doesn't answer no. He simply says this. It's not your concern. It's not your place to know the timing of the Father. You don't need to know. It's not your concern about the earthly kingdom. For now, he says, my kingdom looks like all I've been telling you. Now, we can look at the multiple parables in the Gospels. We can look at the one about the kingdom of the about the parable of the four soils. We can look to the parables about the mustard seed of faith. We can look to the parable of the Good Samaritan and get a good idea, perhaps, of what he was telling his disciples once again. 
We can even look at Jesus' conversation with Pilate before the crucifixion where he says, my kingdom is not of this world. It isn't. And his kingdom doesn't look like anything, any kingdom, any empire, any government that you and I have ever seen. Now, that power that defeated death on a cross is present and on display in Jesus here. It probably seemed natural to them to think that that means that Jesus is time to be king and that they would have finally what they have been waiting so long for, his kingship and his rule on the throne in Jerusalem. Romans would be kicked out. They would be in. But Jesus says, don't worry about that. Your job, he says, is not yet to rule in Jerusalem. It's to be my witnesses to the world. His answer to their desire to change the rule of law, his answer to their powers, uh, to, the change, to their desire to change the powers that be, to, to change the state of the world that they were in, was to give them power to share the testimony, the truth, and the witness of Jesus' self-sacrificial life. And by the way, this idea that their power as God's people is to be witnesses is not a new thing to the book of Acts or even to the Gospels. In Isaiah chapter 43, Jesus is, or God is speaking to the nation of Israel, and He says this in Isaiah, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It's I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you, so you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. That sounds a whole lot like the Great Commission. In Isaiah 44, the very next chapter, God says this, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nations and let them declare to them the, nation, the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place, do not tremble, do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? I know of none. From ancient times, God had called the people of Israel out to be primarily His people for one reason to be witnesses to the identity of God. Your job, he says, Jesus says in Acts 1, are to be witnesses. Again, this shouldn't be a surprise to them. It is nothing even new. In fact, there's even a whole book of the Old Testament that deals with this exact same idea that the God's people are to be witnesses. It's the book of Jonah. Jonah is not primarily about a fish. It's about the people of God being a witness to the nations. By the way, Starting this Wednesday night, we'll be studying the book of Job on our Wednesday night studies. So you can catch that online. Just a little plug. So Jesus proves to them his resurrection. He teaches them about the kingdom of God. And finally, he says here, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In verse 5, he calls it the baptism with or by the Holy Spirit. God's mystifying solution to the problems of the first century, to the problems of history, to the problems of our current world, is to empower witnesses. 
witnesses to tell of the accomplished work of Christ on the cross and the defeat of death and the resurrection. To empower witnesses to do all that Jesus taught them concerning the kingdom. It is to empower witnesses, living examples of the transformation that death and resurrection and the life and teaching of Jesus can bring. What does the Spirit empower us with? If we were to go to John chapter 14, 15, and 16, we would see this. The Spirit empowers us to, do, to tell the truth. These are the things the Spirit does. He tells the truth. He teaches the words of God. He reminds us of the teaching of Christ. He will testify about Jesus. He will convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. He will guide us into all truth. He will glorify Christ by revealing Jesus to us. These are just a, a few things. This power that Jesus is talking about in Acts chapter 1 comes from something called that Christ calls the baptism with the Spirit. Now this phrasing is something we're going to explore in more detail in coming weeks. It's been one that for at least 100 years or so has been somewhat controversial. This phrasing in Greek takes place seven times in the New Testament. Six of them refer directly to the events of Acts chapter 2, what we call Pentecost. And by the way, today is Pentecost Sunday, 50 days from Easter. Six of the seven times you see the phrase baptized with or by the Spirit, it's in direct reference to the events of Acts chapter 2, either looking forward to them or looking back at them. So what is the baptism by or with the Spirit? I'd love to spend some more time talking with you about that this morning. We're going to get to that in coming weeks. I promise you, we will. There are a great many questions about it. We'll get there. But this morning, we must see for Jesus what the meaning is for the disciples. The signature of the Holy Spirit is not primarily speaking in tongues or even in some mysterious prayer language. The signature of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is empowering witnessing. The sign of the presence of the Spirit in the life of a believer is testifying and witnessing to the life of Christ. It's the empowerment to live a kingdom life, to have the faith of a mustard seed, to produce the fruit of the good soil, to love our neighbors and even our enemies as Christ has loved us. It doesn't take much life for many years of living to realize that these things are hard. Look at our world and see the failures all around us of these things. The Bible even tells us this. It tells us that all of us, me and you included, are unrighteous in that there is no desire in our hearts to be righteous, to know God. There's none of that within us, the Bible says. This is who we are as a human race. We're wicked and selfish and unrighteous. This is why we need not to be better we need to be transformed. This morning, through this scripture, our reminder is that we, and by those of us, I mean those of us this morning perhaps who have turned our lives over to Jesus Christ, those of us who have placed in Him our hope of salvation and living, we are not as powerless as someone might think. That we might not all have the political power we would like to have. Maybe we don't have the legal power we would like to have to get things changed and to do the things we think ought to be done. Maybe we think we lack the strength 
to enforce righteousness. There is one who does, and our power is to be witness to him. Our power is to give testimony to the plan and the work of God, to the finished task of Christ on the cross and the empty tomb. Our power is to relish, to celebrate, and to live in the truth of Jesus' ascension, which has placed him on the eternal throne of God's kingdom, given us an advocate before the Father, and secured for us a future where the questions of today will one day simply be history. Our power is to teach our children and grandchildren these things, the truths of Christ, to speak of them to our neighbors, our co-workers, and to give testimony to the power of Jesus and what He has done for each one of us. Our power is to share what He has said about the kingdom, to show how the Scriptures speak of Him from beginning to end, and to live lives that demonstrate what kingdom life is like. to live live lives that have resurrection power at their core. Now, in case you're wondering if these things can make a difference, in case you're wondering whether there's talk on Sunday morning of resurrection, or talk on daily basis of being controlled in the Spirit, if these things will make a difference, remember that on the day of Acts chapter 1 and 2 that we're talking about, there were about 120 disciples. 120 And here we are, all these centuries later, and there are countless millions, if not billions, who are now part of the kingdom of God because of the power Christ gave these men. We have a hope. Not based on a political or governmental change. Though those things can be and should be influenced by the kingdom of God, Our hope is based on the power of Jesus to change and transform the heart of men and women. His power, not to make our hearts, not to make us better people, but to make us alive and not dead people. His power to give us not repaired hearts, but totally new hearts. I mentioned that the phrasing in verse 5 about being baptized with the Spirit is seen seven times in the New Testament, six of them referring to, specifically to Acts chapter 2. The one other reference is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to read that for you here. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, says this. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. In other words, the power that Jesus gave the disciples in Acts chapter 1 and is demonstrated in Acts chapter 2 was not for a specific elite group of believers. It's for all believers. You have this morning, if you have placed your faith in Christ, that power. Ephesians chapter 1 Verse 3 says, God has blessed us, all of us. It's speaking to the entire church. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. 2 Peter chapter 1, we looked at this verse uh, a few weeks ago on Sunday morning, says this, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to God and to life and godliness. You know what that means? 
It means that you and I, as those who have placed our faith in Christ, lack nothing. None of us can look at some other believer. None of us can look at some other individual, no matter how powerful or influential or gifted we think they are, none of us can look at someone else and say, I don't have enough. If you are a believer in Christ this morning, if you have placed in Him your hope of salvation, you have been empowered with the same Spirit that Peter and James and John were. And it resides in you this morning. Here is our hope as we face a nation that looks like ours does right now on the news. Here is our hope to look forward not to a political figure, not a social activist, not even a movement. These may be, and they can be, important tools. And Christians should be active on these fronts. But these are not the source of power. Christ is. And He has given us, He has given you and me, power to point people, to point the victims of prejudice and murder to Christ. He's given us power to point those who would foster hate and murder to Jesus. He has given us power to speak of His kingdom, its life, its power, its judgment, its righteousness, its truths, to live out that love in holiness and compassion and grace, and to do all this pointing to Jesus. That power resides in all true followers of Christ, and it resides nowhere else. The power to solve and address the sins and evils of this world are on display and the cross, the empty tomb, and the mountaintop ascension, the clouds of His return, and the Spirit-filled, empowered, baptized believers of God. Go and tell.